Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Ruth 4. We will conclude our sermon series through this wonderful book today. And I hope that you have benefited from this series as much as I have. Uh, As you're turning to Ruth 4, I'd like to tell a quick story. This past winter, I read a book called The Gospel of Ruth by Carolyn Custis James. And in this book, uh, Carolyn Custis James talks about some of the unique struggles of being a woman, not only in ancient cultures when patriarchy was more dominant, but also today in the 21st century. And according to James, uh, countless women, especially in religious circles, are living beneath the crushing weight of an unbiblical teaching which says that a woman's identity and value can only come from one of two places in life. Either her identity and value comes from being a wife or a mother, or her identity and value comes from being a potential wife or a mother. Now, Carolyn Custis James is both a wife and a mother herself, and she sees these two roles as two of the most honorable and rewarding gifts of God in this life. However, she also notes that there are a number of devastating problems with this unbiblical teaching, which again says that a woman's significance, identity, value can only come from being a wife or a mother. For example, this message can disillusion single women, making them feel like they are living in a cosmic waiting room, just killing time until their real lives begin. This message can crush married women, putting the weight of the world on their shoulders to be a perfect wife or a mother, or at least to be perceived as one, since that is their primary purpose in life after all. This message can dishearten empty nesters, making them feel like all of their years of influence are behind them. This message can pour salt into the wound of the woman who has tried to have kids but could not, or the mother who has lost a child due to miscarriage or another form of early death. This message can add unnecessary guilt to the mother whose kids have cut themselves off from a relationship with her, making her feel like she could have prevented this if she would have just been better at her one job in life. But on top of all of this, this message can be haunting to the widow teaching her that she had significance and value for a season, but that season has ended. Now, without a doubt, Naomi, from the book of Ruth, was right in the center of the crosshairs of many of these challenges. You will remember that she had lost her husband, Elimelech. She had lost her only two sons, Malon and Chilion. And now she was on the verge of losing her land and more importantly, the opportunity for her and Elimelech's name to be perpetuated. And understandably, as we have considered in the last three weeks, Naomi struggled and wrestled deeply with questions that all of us struggle with at certain times in our lives. Questions like, has my usefulness expired? Are God's purposes for me suddenly finished? Has God withdrawn his love from me? Has God left me alone without a redeemer? Now, it is important to remember, as David Wolin helpfully highlighted last week, that by the time we get to chapter 4, hope is on the rise for Ruth and Naomi. 
uh, Boaz had just promised to redeem them at the end of chapter 3, and he even left them, get this, with a down payment of their future redemption. Um, However, although Ruth and Naomi had already received a promise of their redemption, they had not yet received the fullness of this redemption. They were living in a hopeful yet extremely difficult time that we might call, let's say, the already not yet. And it is in this same tension that we, New Covenant Bible Church, find ourselves today. Like Ruth and Naomi, we all have received, if if you are a child of God through faith in Christ, we have received a promise of redemption but we have not yet received the fullness of this redemption. And because of that, we are all prone to wrestle from time to time with some of the same questions and doubts as as Naomi did. Perhaps you have even experienced some of this wrestling in the past week. Feelings of purposelessness or confusion or deep sorrow or emptiness. And if that's you Let me just say up front that you are not alone and that God has not left you without hope. So here's what I would like to consider this morning. What hope do we have when we, like Naomi, are tempted to believe that our usefulness has expired? What hope do we have when we are tempted to believe that God does not have a purpose for us or for our suffering? What hope do we have when we are tempted to believe that God's love, his hesed kindness has been removed from us or that God has left us all alone without a redeemer? Today we are going to consider a tale of three redeemers from Ruth chapter 4. And my prayer is that as we study this passage this morning, we will be filled with fresh confidence that God has not left us without a purpose. He has not left us without hope and he has not left us without a redeemer. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into this. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would show us Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer this morning, through your word and by your Holy Spirit, in ways that would lead us into deeper trust, greater comfort, richer joy, and active faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Ruth 4, we read of a tale of three redeemers, and my outline for this sermon is up on the screen, so you can see it up there. First, we are going to see a redeemer who promises but cannot deliver. Second, we are going to see a redeemer who delivers but cannot save. And then finally, we will see a redeemer who saves and cannot fail. So let's begin by looking at redeemer number one, a redeemer who promises and cannot deliver. We see this in verses one through six, so please follow along as I read. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. By the way, the city gate was a place where legal transactions took place. It wasn't just like your standard gate. So it would be common for elders or judges to come to this gate daily and confirm and legalize business transactions there. Oftentimes commoners like you and like me would also go and hang around this gate just to kind of see what's going on. They didn't have Netflix, but they had this gate that they could go and just just listen and watch. Um, So that's the gate. Okay, verse one. Now, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And Boaz took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. 
So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. If you're someone who underlines words in your Bibles, you might want to underline the words, I will. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, by the way, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for, for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Again, if you underline words in your Bible, maybe underline the words, I cannot, right there. So who is this first redeemer? Who is he? Well, look back at verse 1 for a moment. Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. Oh, so they're friends. Well, virtually all commentators agree that this guy was not actually Boaz's friend. This was merely a kind gesture. Now, Alistair Bagg points out that the King James Version um, most likely provides the most helpful and certainly the funniest translation of this verse. If you have a King James Version or access to one, you might want to pull it out and look at this. Um, Verse 1, King James Version, says that when the Redeemer came by, Boaz said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. (laughs) Can you imagine someone saying that to you as you walk out to your car after church today? Ho, such a one. Turn aside, sit down here. (laughs) You might be tempted to run in that situation, but this man sits down showing the respect that he had for Boaz. Now, as funny as this description is, such a one is likely a much better translation or modern translation than merely friend. In fact, perhaps the best modern-day equivalent of what Boaz said is found in the CSB footnotes, which translate Boaz's words as... Come here, Mr. So and so. In other words, come here, Mr. Uh, uh, what is your name again? Now, whether Mr. So and so or such a one or generic friend is the best translation, the point that the author of Ruth is trying to highlight is this this guy, Redeemer number one, is a no namer. His name is not important, he is forgettable. Now, here's why this man's insignificance is so significant. The very reason why Mr. So-and-so chose not to redeem Ruth and Naomi, according to verse 6, is because he was supremely concerned with preserving his own name. And ironically, by seeking to preserve his own name, his name is forgotten forever. Meanwhile, Boaz acts in faith for the glory of God's name, and he is remembered forever. We're still talking about him today. Here's the point. The name that God builds for us is always better than any name that we could ever build for ourselves. As Martin Lloyd-Jones put it, and it's up on the screen, he said, whenever man sets out to exalt himself, Lord, forgive us, he always ends up lowering himself and insulting himself instead. Or, in the words of Jesus in Mark 8.35, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. 
this text challenges us to ask ourselves, what are you busy with today? Are you busy trying to magnify your own name? Or are you busy trying to magnify the name of God? Once again, the name that God builds for us is always better than any name that we could ever build for ourselves. So this means that we can rest from our tireless efforts to build ourselves a name that, by the way, will never last. And we are free to live for the glory of God's name, which is a glorious, joy-filled mission that will have eternal significance. Okay, so Redeemer number one initially promises to bring redemption, but then after finding out how much it would cost him, he backs out of it. Notice what he says in verse six. He says, I cannot redeem it for myself. No, notice, notice this, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now, what in the world did he mean by this? Well, he meant that if he acquired this land, he would have not only had to pay the, the price of the land itself, the cost of the land itself, but he would have also had to pay the cost of living for Ruth. And he would have had to pay the cost of living for Naomi. And by the way, this land that he acquired, it would actually not go to himself or to his sons. It would have to go to the, the sons of Ruth. In other words, this was a massive cost or output with virtually zero monetary or physical gain for himself. Putting it bluntly, the only way that Redeemer number one could save Ruth and Naomi was by sacrificing himself. The only way he could give others an inheritance was by sharing his own inheritance. But this cost proved to be way too much for him. He promised, but he could not deliver. Now, interestingly, you might say that Redeemer number one is strikingly similar to many false redeemers in our own lives. Many people or things will initially promise to give us life and salvation, but they're never able to follow through on their promises. There always comes a point, think about that one thing in your life that you look to for life and salvation, there always comes a point when we ask too much of these things. So for example, you might look to a spouse or a potential spouse to fulfill your longing for love, but when you ask that spouse, will you satisfy my longing for perfect love? That spouse will say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. We might look to money to give us a sense of security, but when you ask that money on your deathbed, will you give me eternal security? That money will say, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. We might look to a job to give us a sense of purpose, but when you ask that job, will you give me a purpose that can never be lost? That job will say, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. The point is this, whatever we look to for redemption, our security will be entirely wrapped up in the stability of that object. So whenever we put our hope for redemption in anything temporary, anything in this world, there will always come a point when we ask too much of that person or thing and we will be left disappointed. So that's Redeemer number one. Redeemer number one promised, but he could not deliver. So let's move to Redeemer number two now. And that's Boaz. Boaz. Now, like Redeemer number one, Boaz initially promises to redeem Ruth and Naomi. We saw this promise back in chapter 3, verse 13. So the question is, will Boaz actually follow through on his promise to redeem them, or will the cost prove to be too much for him too? What do we think? Well, let's look at verses 7 through 17 and see how he responds. Verses 7 through 17. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance so that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pause here for a moment. David Wollen did a great job last week highlighting the important background of Tamar, Judah, and Perez. If you did not get a chance to listen to that sermon, I would strongly encourage you to go online and uh, download it and listen to it. Um, For today, I'd like to just highlight two aspects I don't know how many fingers I was holding up. Two aspects of Boaz's redemption that we see in these verses. Two aspects of Boaz's redemption that we see in these verses, or better yet, two things that this redemption is not. Okay? So first, notice that this redemption is not partial. Look back at verse 9 for a moment, and notice how much Boaz redeems. It says, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion, and you might say all that belonged to Malon. Get this, when the day of redemption came, Boaz made sure he did not leave anything out. Nothing would be forgotten. Everything would be redeemed for the good of Ruth and Naomi. If you're imaginative, you might think perhaps there were even some things that Ruth and Naomi had forgotten about that Boaz still redeemed. This was a comprehensive, full-fledged redemption. So first, notice that this redemption is not partial. Second, notice that this redemption is not, keyword, merely rescue. I need to give David Wollen credit for this observation. Theoretically, Boaz could have simply married Ruth without redeeming her and her family. Think about this for a second. In a blink of an eye, simply by marrying Ruth, Boaz could have rescued her from most of the immediate struggles that she personally faced. He could have simply given her an escape or a quick fix from her most immediate pain, and it would have cost him a lot less too. But Boaz was concerned with far more than simply giving Ruth a quick fix to her struggles. Rescuing Ruth was not enough for Boaz. Boaz was committed to redeeming Ruth, no matter what the cost was to himself. Many times in life, we may think that our greatest need is rescue, when in reality, it's redemption. We'll come back to that point in a moment. Uh, But for now, please just note that this redemption was not partial, and it was not merely rescue. 
Okay, let's continue now in verse 13. And here we come to the climax of the chapter, and I would argue the climax of the whole book. David Wolin made a comment last week. He was like, this is the climax of the whole book of Ruth. And I was like, no, it's not. It's in chapter four. So this, I think, is the climax of the whole book. Okay, verse 13. One of the benefits of going last, I get the final word. Um, okay, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Again, I would argue that these verses are the climax of the chapter, arguably the climax of the whole book, and if we are not careful in how we interpret these verses, we can actually miss the most important point of the entire book, which which David began to um, uh, unravel for us last week. Um, So I'd like us to consider for a moment an extremely common and yet extremely dangerous way to interpret the ending of Ruth. And we might call this the happily ever after fallacy. Now, what is this fallacy? Well, this is the idea that the Bible teaches and that Ruth teaches that God intends to take away our grief in life by giving us other things in life to replace or compensate for what we've lost. Track track with me for a second here. So here's how this fallacy would play out when interpreting the end of Ruth. It might go something like this. Well, uh, welcome church. Today we are going to consider the story of Naomi. Uh, At the beginning of Naomi's story, she loses her husband and her two sons, and she was full of grief. But now, at the end of the story, God gives her a grandson to make up for what she had lost. And not only that, but through this grandson comes none other than King David himself. In other words, God compensated for what he took away from Naomi by giving her something arguably even better. It's the perfect happily ever after ending. In fact, it's just like the perfect happily ever after ending of Job. Job also lost his whole family, but at the end of his life, God gave him a new family and an even greater prosperity than he had before. So Job and Naomi's grief was instantly turned into joy, and what they had lost was replaced by what they had gained. Amen. You are dismissed. (laughs) Can you spot some potential problems with this interpretation? Carolyn Custis James and Sinclair Ferguson both helpfully warn us of the danger of this line of thinking. Here's how Carolyn Custis James put it, and it's up on the screen. She says, We must resist sticking a happily ever after banner over the ending of Ruth. The Bible does not teach us that God is working from some divine balance sheet and will eventually even up accounts so that we recover our losses and our sacrifices are repaid. 
Listen to this. It's obvious to anyone who has experienced a significant loss that the sorrows of this world and the wounds they inflict in our souls cannot be compensated. No matter how much good fortune and prosperity come our way, that's just not how life works. To suggest that everything balanced out in the end for Naomi is to trivialize both her sufferings and also what God is trying to teach us through her story. Sinclair Ferguson says something very similar and equally helpful. He says, every earthly blessing is only a token of what is to come. It is not meant to compensate or heal all of our past wounds. Yes, Naomi was happy, but her losses were not suddenly healed. This will only come with the final kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. This concept is essential to understanding the story of Naomi and the story of Ruth and the story of Job and the story of every other sufferer in the Bible, and ultimately your story and my story. We cannot live our lives thinking that gaining something in this temporary life will somehow heal our past wounds. New joys cannot erase past sorrows. As Carolyn Custis James put it, that's just not how life works. Now, you might say, well, what on earth am I supposed to do then? I have lost so much in this life. And I long for a restoration of those things. I long for everything sad to become untrue. And if that's you, let me just say that this is an extremely healthy longing. In fact, do you know what this longing is called? This is called a longing for redemption. Our longing for redemption is our longing for something or someone to buy back everything that we have lost. Our longing for redemption is not merely our longing for our parents to take us out for ice cream to cheer us up after we scrape our knee. That's not redemption. Heaven is not a world full of pleasures to cheer us up after a long, hard life. That's not redemption. That's consolation. Redemption is more than consolation. Redemption is more even than just restoration. Redemption is more even than, than a healing or a band-aiding of our past wounds. Redemption is more even than rescue. Redemption is the promise that every single hardship in life will not merely be forgotten or compensated, but rather, redemption is the promise that every single hardship we experience in life will actually have a glorious purpose that works for God's greater good and our greater joy. God's greater glory and our greater joy. Redemption is the promise that nothing in life is meaningless, but that God will actually buy back not only us, but also every single faithful act of obedience that you committed in your life. And also he will buy back all of our suffering and all of our seemingly wasted years and all of our mistakes and all of our regrets. And yes, even all of our sins. And God, in his unfathomable glory and power, 
and grace will actually use all of these events in our lives and he will bend them for his greater glory and for our greater good. Listen to how John Newton put it. It's up on the screen. He said, we serve a gracious master who will overrule even our mistakes to his glory and our own advantage. This is redemption. This is what we all desperately long for. We know this from our own experience. We also know this from the Bible. Romans 8.23 says that we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Here's the point. What, what Boaz provided for Ruth and Naomi, it was pretty, pretty wonderful. But um, although he delivered Ruth and Naomi, he was not ultimately able to save Ruth and Naomi. He was not ultimately able to heal all of their past wounds. He was not ultimately able to bring the redemption that they desperately longed for, the eternal redemption that they desperately longed for. He was not able to take away their guilt in, their, in their, their grief over their own sin. He was not able to provide eternal forgiveness for them. He couldn't bring the salvation that they desperately longed for. He delivered on his promises, but he wasn't able to save them. And so it is for every earthly redeemer. The best earthly redeemers might be able to deliver us in some ways, but none of them can save us. So what hope do we have then? Who can? Who can bring us the eternal, full-fledged redemption that we all so desperately long for? Well, fortunately, there's one more redeemer that we're going to look at today, and that's redeemer number three. Um, so uh, let's look at this now. If redeemer number one promised but could not deliver, redeemer two delivered but could not save, redeemer number three, he saves and cannot fail. We see this in verses 18 through 22, so please follow along as I read the last five verses of the chapter. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Menadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Okay, a couple of very important names from this genealogy. Look back at verse 21. The first is Salmon. Now, I don't know if Salmon was his real name. It sounds kind of fishy to me. <laughs> Fortunately, what's most important is who comes after Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. Now, whenever you read a genealogy, no matter where it is in Scripture, there's always at least one thing that you should take away from it. And that is that everyone dies. Genealogies uniquely highlight the brevity of life. It's someone's life in just a few words. So you could almost read verses 21 through 22, if you look back down at verses 21 through 22, you could almost read it like this. Salmon is born, and then he dies. Boaz is born, and then he dies. Obed is born, and then he dies. Jesse is born, and then he dies. David is born. And interestingly, we get this picture of David here where it almost comes across as if it, he never dies. The book just ends. <laughs> and then David is born. The end. It, it almost feels like 
in, in one sense, like, like an eternal king is born to Israel or something like that. Wouldn't that be great? Unfortunately, we know from 1 Kings chapter 2 that David does die. But what Ruth 4 gives us a glimpse into is the eternal kingship of someone who comes from the line of David. Interestingly, the Matthew 1 genealogy goes from Ruth to Obed to David, but then it goes all the way down to Jesus and it just ends there. That's where it ends. And unlike David, Jesus, he rises from the dead and he forever defeats the power of death and sin for all of God's people, something that Boaz, something that David, something that no other mere human could accomplish. Jesus is the true eternal king. Now you might say, why is it so important that he's an eternal king? Well, fortunately, Hebrews 7, 24 through 25 gives us a wonderful answer to that question. So if you would check out, it's up on the screen, Hebrews 7, 24 through 25. Why is it important that Jesus is an eternal king? Here it is. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely something Boaz could never do, those who come to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the only redeemer who not only promises and delivers, but who also saves and cannot fail. So what, what do we do with all of this? What do, we, what do we take away from Ruth 4 and ultimately from the entire book of Ruth? How, how ought we to respond to this today and in the days ahead? Very briefly, I'd like to close today by just considering three applications from Ruth 4 and from the book of Ruth. Three applications, um, and they're up on the screen. Uh, I'll read through them right now, and then we'll go through them one at a time very briefly. So takeaway number one, in your suffering, trust that God still has a glorious purpose for you. Takeaway number two, in your striving, trust that your ultimate identity and value comes not from what you can produce, but from who you are united to. And takeaway number three, in your sorrow, trust that God has not left you without a redeemer. So maybe 60 seconds on each of these. Uh, So first, takeaway number one, in your suffering, trust that God still has a glorious purpose for you. I absolutely love how John Piper describes the message of the book of Ruth. Uh, Take a look at this, and I'll read it. It's also up on the screen. John Piper says, At one level, the message of the book of Ruth is that the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory, but they do get there. The life of the godly is not an interstate through Nebraska, but a state road through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Tennessee. (laughs) There are rock slides and precipices and dark mists and bears and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backward in order to go forward. But all along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead, there are frequent signs that say the best is yet to come. Taken as a whole, the story of Ruth is one of those signs. It was written to give us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere. And not only going somewhere, going somewhere good. They do not lead off a cliff. In all the setbacks of our lives as believers, God is plotting for our joy. I love that last phrase. And you can picture John Piper saying that, I'm sure. Um, Better than I could ever say it. In all our setbacks, God is plotting for our joy. 
Okay, so first takeaway from the book of Ruth, in your suffering, trust that God still has a glorious purpose for you. Takeaway number two, in your striving, trust that your ultimate identity and value comes not from what you can produce, but from who you are united to. Do you remember the false teaching that we considered at the beginning of this sermon, which says that a woman's significance and value and identity can only come from being a wife or a mother? I wonder what the Bible might have to say about that teaching. I wonder what Ruth 4.15 might have to say about that teaching. Look at Ruth 4.15 for a moment. And notice how Ruth 4.15 completely demolishes this line of thinking. The women said, your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, and notice this, who is, you might say, worth more to you than seven sons. Interestingly, interesting. There might not be a clearer statement in the Bible that a woman is worth far more than what she can produce. She's worth far more than being a wife or a mother. Here, Ruth is described as being more valuable than seven sons. Now, you might say, why seven? That's weird. Well, seven is the number of perfection. So imagine this verse saying this, that Ruth is more valuable than if she had the perfect number of kids and the perfectly well-behaved kids, and she was the perfect mother. According to this verse, that wouldn't change her ultimate identity and value. The, The Bible's consistent teaching is that your ultimate identity and value is not found in what you can produce, but in who you are united to. And if you are a child of God united to Christ, your identity and your value is eternally secure. No matter if you're single or married or have kids or don't have kids or young or old, it doesn't change. Okay, so first, in your suffering, trust that God still has a glorious purpose for you. Number two, takeaway number two, in your striving, trust that your value in life comes not from what you can produce, but who you are united to. And third and finally, in your sorrow, trust that God has not left you without a redeemer. Ruth 4.14 might be my my favorite verse in the book of Ruth. This was the verse that caught my eye first when I read through uh, the book a couple months ago um, for the first time in a while. And it says this, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. What is the purpose of the book of Ruth? It's to lead you and to lead me into worship as we contemplate the glorious redemption and the glorious redeemer that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. Jesus is the one who brings us into his family and secures for us all of the benefits of of being in that family. He's the one who shares his eternal inheritance with us. He's the one who gives us uh, um, forgiveness of sins, things that Boaz could never do. Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. While we were preparing to preach this series, David Sunday made a comment that I thought was very helpful. He said, in every chapter, he was kind of sitting back in his chair and just like, like this just came out of him, but it seemed really profound to me, like something like I would prepare to say, but David just says it. But he said, in every chapter, God makes it clear, I have not forgotten Naomi. And in every chapter of Ruth, and in every chapter of the Bible, this is God's message for you too. He says, my son, my daughter, 
I see you. I see your suffering. I have not forgotten you. I have not left you alone. And I will not leave you without a Redeemer. Let's pray. Thank you, O our Father, for giving us your Son and leaving us your Spirit till the work on earth is done. Fill us this morning with the hope of redemption and help us to live today and this week and the days ahead in the joy of our precious Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.